The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Trish Critic. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine article discussion podcast series. Today's podcast builds on a pair of editorials published in the July 1st edition of the journal. The piece is focused on sepsis 3 and the implications of a new definition of sepsis. I'm lucky enough to have with me today both editorialists, Dr. Derek Angus, Chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and Dr. Christian Hartog from the Center for Sepsis Control and Care in Jena, Germany. So I'm going to start with my first question to Dr. Angus. Before we get into the content of your editorial, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of insight into the background discussions that led to the creation of the task force and subsequently the new definitions in sepsis 3. So why did leaders in critical care feel we needed a new definition of sepsis? What was the discussion preceding the work? So the decision to create the task force came from inside ESICM and SCCM, but my understanding about that from when that conversation carried over into the early days of the task force was that it was really in recognition of the fact that there were two prior definitions, one from 1992 led by Roger Bone and then an update first authored by Mitch Levy that was conducted in 2001, though not published till 2003. Mm-hmm. And the 2001 update was also just based on expert opinion and didn't involve that many changes over 1992. And so in many respects, the existing documentation was relatively static, and the latest update was from over 15 years ago. Since that time, there's been a massive explosion in the basic science understanding of the host immune response in sepsis and infection. Indeed, even the Nobel Prize has been awarded since then for work largely discovered since those original definitions. There's also been a huge number of trials of potential therapies, including notable failures, which required some reflection. Uh, There's been an explosion in the number of epidemiologic studies of sepsis, advances and changes in the way in which sepsis is coded, massive change in public awareness, a big interest in sepsis outside the ICU, statewide and federal quality initiatives around sepsis were being introduced in the United States. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign had been created since the last definitions. Um, And largely, uh, we were moving into a world where there was the sense that the era of expert opinion was largely behind us, and that new definitions ought to be informed by empiric analyses of data. And in this new world where there was increasing access to electronic health record data, it seemed almost unconscionable to not revisit the definitions. So I'm going to ask Dr. Hartog to kind of to respond to that a little bit. What I hear is lots of evolution in our science, lots of evolution in kind of public health movements around sepsis, and a lot of this was driven by a definition that was more than two decades old, driven by expert opinion. So all of those were compelling reasons to bring together a group to potentially use data to derive a new definition. My sense from your editorial, Dr. Hartog, is that you didn't know that we were at the point that we absolutely needed a new definition yet. So I'm wondering what you think of what Derek's proposed, and if those aren't compelling reasons to get a new definition, what would be? Well, yes, thank you. I think it's all true what Derek said, but in reality, what we need is a scientific breakthrough 
like a test or some kind of marker that would definitively identify septic patients, and we don't have that. So a definition is it basically uses to help us in patient care. We want to identify patients early. We want to start therapy early, and this is what we have now. We have a definition that helps us do this. If we want to change towards a new definition, we must be sure that it's better, that it's more beneficial, that it will enable us to identify patients earlier and to initiate treatment earlier. And it's my concern, and this is what we wrote in the editorial, that these new definitions, we are not sure where we're standing. They're just not validated. It's basically it's expert opinion with data showing risk stratification, but no proof of diagnostic accuracy or validation against existing criteria. So I don't think at the moment these are ready for use yet. Okay, we're going to build on that a little bit. So I want to take one thing that Christiana talked about there and dig into that a little bit more to start with, and that is this question of what do you do when you don't have a gold standard to diagnose something? And I think, Derek, you talked about that a fair amount in your editorial. I think both of you agree, based on what I've read from both of you, that you know, we don't have a gold standard to diagnose sepsis, and I think that's what we one of the things we struggle with. The question is, what do you do in that space? So I'm going to ask you first, Eric, kind of how do you work around that creation of a new definition, or can you create a new definition when you don't have a gold standard to say this is a true case? Yeah, so this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. I think that people are very happy to acknowledge that there's no gold standard and then not acknowledge it simultaneously. There's cognitive dissonance. Remember, if there isn't a gold standard, there's no way to actually know. Let's say, for example, there was a new diagnostic test. This notion of this phrasing diagnostic accuracy is a misspecification of reality uh, because if you don't know what sepsis is as a gold standard, you can't compare something else to it. Intensivists actually understand this in other areas. Um, For example, we often, in the early days when we were trying to measure cardiac output, would do things where we would measure two different ways of measuring cardiac output. And we would know that neither method was necessarily measuring actual cardiac output. And so we would look at agreement between the two methods without necessarily holding one standard above another. This is only one example of what are, in fact, multiple domains and methods by which people can try to get uh, domains of validity and domains of agreement and domains of reliability. And you, you asked me how we should march through this. We should march through it the way everyone else does. <laughs> Uh, the, the, this problem has uh, gets in the way of disease and syndrome definition in almost every area of medicine. And there's decades of experience of thinking through different domains of validity. Now, none of them are perfect, and you can actually have a set of criteria that behave well in one domain of validity and don't behave so well in another. Um, and I think that's quite well acknowledged by the task force. But the problem is, although many of the readers say, yeah, 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 we understand there's no gold standard, then in their head, they still think there is a gold standard. (laughs) 
where this happens a little bit is because people suffer from availability bias. They have in their head a classic case. For example, someone with meningococcal septicemia, and they say, well, I know that's sepsis. And so although they've said, yeah, yeah, there's no gold standard, in their minds they sort of feel like that they know who is septic. When you start to evaluate any of these criteria, the problem is not whether you're finding the meningococcal septicemia case. It's all the cases on the periphery that are harder to define. And, and, and that's why there's not a universal gold standard, and that's why there's no such thing as, for example, sensitivity and specificity for sepsis. So what do we do? We have to embrace the much muddier mm -hmm. path of having multiple domains of validity and reliability, which is what our colleagues do. It's what our colleagues do in psychiatry. It's what our colleagues do in rheumatology and so forth. Yeah, I, I would agree that the rheumatologists are particularly good at embracing the gray and the lack of a exactness in, in diagnosis. I think you allude to something that Christiana was talking about, though, and I want her to comment a little bit further on this. When you're doing that and, and you describe that, oh, well, we know meningococcemia when we see it, but we want to not miss or we want to pay attention to those areas in the periphery, I think that some of the concern I'm hearing is that we're going to, with using mortality as part of this process of validation, that we're going to miss the less sick people in that periphery and maybe not intervene on them as quickly or as urgently as we should. I don't know, Christiana, is that part of what you're alluding to? I yes, and I would also like to comment a little bit on, on what Derek said, because I think it's very, it's it's true what, what you've been telling us, but I don't think it's relevant in the sense that you want to make it. We are not in a situation where we have to choose between different diagnoses. We are in a situation where we have an approach that is running, it's working. We are not so much concerned whether it's the true or the gold standard or the true approach, but we've been doing this now for many years, decades, and I think we are not so bad at doing this. The observational studies show mortality is going down. That cannot be a bad thing. So whatever we come up with, a new thing needs to be tested against what we are doing now. So before, that's, that's the main point I'm making. And before, I'm not saying it's wrong to devise new definitions or to kind of spin around and toss some ideas about this. But before we implement these, we need to be convinced that when we use them, we'll be providing better patient care. So we need validation of new definitions against the old definitions. It's quite simple. What do you think yeah, about that, I guess that, I don't Derek? really know what that, I guess I really don't know what that means. Um, well, I, I can tell you what I'm talking about. I mean, I would expect uh, to see chart reviews, for instance, when you go into this retrospectively with experts rating uh, cases, uh, I mean, uh, uh, coming to a consensus according to the old definitions, which is what we're doing now, and then applying the new definitions and then showing us where the difference is and what this would mean. And then also doing this um, prospectively. And in this way... Yeah, so, so let me give things. you an example, Christiana. So if you sat down yes. and said, we're going to do a chart review and we're going to find all the patients that we thought were infected and we're going to call the subset septic, those that have organ dysfunction, 
what are the criteria that you would tell the reviewers to use for organ dysfunction? I mean, my understanding was that the task force basically came down with the two-point change in the SOFA score, and that was the only piece in the definition, was just trying to standardize that the break in organ dysfunction that they were going to call sepsis was two new points in SOFA. Are there other organs you would be evaluating, or would you be no. telling the reviewers to score those organs in a way other no. than SOFA? I, I, I just no. I don't understand. Well, actually, I thought you would be doing something similar to what you published in the accompanying article. You referred to it in your editorial, and that's how I saw it, and I looked at these two accompanying articles by you and, and Christopher Seema published in CCM. Well, actually, you took the new definitions and uh, applied them to the health, uh, electronic health records that uh, you have, and you found that with the uh, new definitions compared to the definitions by the CMS, the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, the new definitions came up with a fourfold number of patients, like 11,000 versus 2,700 with the, I call them classical no, definitions. And the mortality was different. It was 9% in the, with the new definitions versus 24% with the old definitions. So this is something that I would like to see. I guess what I'm getting confused about is what you're calling new. So, for example, I feel like saying that sepsis is two new points in the SOFA score is something that I've sat in a room with expert panels who have decided that those are the entry criteria for sepsis clinical trials back in the 1990s. So the very start of the podcast, I was asked, why was there a new task force? And I explained why there was a new task force. But that didn't mean to say that there would be new definitions from the task force. There was a new exercise to reevaluate the definitions. As far as I can tell, the definition for sepsis using a score of two SOFA, they, they took out the word severe, but that's all they did. Say, saying that sepsis is an infected patient with two new SOFA points feels like awfully close to what people have been doing for 20 years. So so I, that's what I mean about how I'm confused by when you say we already had something that was working. I can't remember ever in my clinical career having conversations with people around the definition of severe sepsis that wasn't basically infection complicated by organ dysfunction. And every time we said, how do we measure organ dysfunction? You know, there would be a debate around which score, but the scores were all much of a muchness. Um, and indeed, even in our data, there wasn't much difference between the LOD score and the SOFA score. Um, so, so I guess I'm I'm sort of fused by what people think is new. I would have actually thought that all that was new was they dropped the word severe, and they tried to say, look, just two new points in the SOFA score, as, for example, they might have said three new points or one new point, or they might have said, we hate SOFA, let's use LODs. But it was sort of tightening up of a specific a specific recommendation around which organ dysfunction score, but didn't seem, to my mind, very different from what had been around for a long time. My sense from Christiana's editorial is that one thing that's different is the removal of SIRS. And 
I think that is part of what she referred to as what was working. So I don't want to speak for you, but maybe you want to elaborate, Christiana. Yes, no, exactly. Um, uh, of course, it's a clinical diagnosis, and you look at the whole patient, and you kind of you're not always as sure as you would like to be. But those criteria is something that is now omitted in the new definition, and this is something that I think is problematic at this point because we see no data that the substitution of thirst by QSOFA would be an improvement. Again, we'll know definitively when these new criteria, which no longer have thirst but just rely on presence of suspected or documented infection plus SOFA scores according to these cutoffs recommended by the experts, then if we compare those with what we've been using before, then we can say more. Uh, sorry, uh, not exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me speak about SIRS. The 2001 definition published in 2003 actually said uh, that we should get rid of SIRS. So it's not a new thing to get rid of SIRS. It was recommended 15 years ago. In pretty much every paper that's been published since then and before then uh, also pointed out that SIRS had not been particularly helpful. Among patients who are already thought to be infected, we could find no ability of SIRS to help subset infected patients into those that did worse versus those that did better. A separate question is whether you would use SIRS to help diagnose infection. But day one of the task force, they decided they were not revisiting how do you diagnose infection. It's quite possible that many bits of SIRS are still incredibly valuable in helping a clinician decide who's infected in the first place. But of course, that's then combined with many other things. A pneumonia patient, you wouldn't just use SIRS, you would use a history of productive cough, chest x-rays showing an infiltrate, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's plausible to me that, I mean, what you say is right about changes in definitions. I think actually a lot of institutions across this country and, and other countries do use SIRS as a screening criteria to start thinking about sepsis and implementing care for patients with sepsis. So I think one of the things I'm hearing is, I'm curious from both of your perspectives, what would you advise a, a practicing institution about using to screen for early detection of sepsis and interventions? SIRS, QSOFA, something else? And I'm going to start with Christiana, so I'm curious what, you, what your recommendations would be. I would like to answer Derek, uh, who said sure. that SIRS uh, has been criticized for many years, and that's true, and I'm, I, I never wanted to be in a position where I had to defend it, actually, because it is very sensitive. But on the other hand, the task force didn't come up with anything better. SIRS did not do better than the SOFA or QSOFA outside the ICU, but it did not do worse either. So there was nothing that was better. I mean, that doesn't make sense then to drop it. That's, that's not a good reason to drop it, something that has been working for many years and we're familiar with. And, and many people have, been, have put in a lot of work to teach the to implement it into quality improvement in awareness campaigns. And I think they've been doing a tremendous job. 
it's been actually going better and better. That's why it's these new definitions which say, now let's drop sales, are coming a little bit out of the blue. And a problem I have with the substitution of sales, which is QSOFA, outside the ICU and outside the hospital, is that QSOFA has defined cutoffs. Now, there's this element of, you know, clinical... You look at the whole picture, as you said, you look at this, you look at that, but suddenly there's a cutoff. Systolic blood pressure, 100 millimeters Hg. So if you have a hypertensive patient with 110, maybe confused and infection, should I not think of sepsis? Again, the task force then introduces a subjective component, and they say, well, practitioner, dear practitioner, even if the criteria are not met, they're not supposed to be standalone criteria. you, if you're suspicious, you don't delay treatment. But then again, with the subjective component, they kind of invalidate the definitions. I mean, that's confusing if you read these papers. So my conclusion from what you just said is you would suggest sticking with using SIRS as a screening tool or a an alert tool. Right. Is that right? Right. Okay. And Derek, I guess a couple of, I guess a couple of things. First of all, SIRS also has cutoffs, just like, uh, I mean, everything has cutoffs you, <laughs> uh, because you have to turn them into rules. Uh, so a score, uh, to score something, you, you score positive or you score negative and so forth. Secondly, no one was suggesting that QSOFA was a rule out. Uh, indeed, the language was largely suggesting it could be an additional prompt. Uh, so if you have someone you're already worried about and you were sending them to the ICU, the fact that they didn't turn QSOFA positive isn't a reason to deny ICU admission. It was more suggesting that someone who might otherwise have continued to languish on the hospital floor, uh, you might capture additional patients. But that was also just suggested as a potentially a putative application. And I think the task force did spend a lot of time saying, you know, they would sort of welcome people sort of testing things prospectively. As far as what's used currently, certainly our institution doesn't use SIRS, and most institutions uh, that have used SIRS criteria have talked about a huge number of false positives, and it's been quite burdensome. And that's in part because so many patients in the hospital turn uh, serous positive. Maybe the experience outside the United States um, is different, but in the United States, most places, adult hospitals, to my knowledge, have found that uh, SERS is quite draining because it flags so many patients. By the way, we don't have any stake in QSOFA. It was the data... <laughs> It was the regression model that produced QSOFA. It could just as easily have produced SIRS and sort of validated that SIRS was best. That just wasn't what happened when we ran the regression model. But uh, it is notable that QSOFA is awfully similar to what are the existing criteria that lots of people use. So they're very, they're quite similar to the MUSE criteria for rapid response teams. They're quite similar to the CURB65 score, et cetera, for pneumonia. Um, so uh, we ended up thinking, well, it's actually quite reassuring that the criteria that sort of bubbled to the surface in the regression model um, had great similarity to criteria that are already used in other early warning uh, scores, both for 
trying to work out who the bad pneumonia is and trying to work out who's in trouble on the floor. I would agree that SIRS often puts a lot of people in the bucket of who you worry about. So, Christiana, I think you acknowledged that a little bit in your editorial, but maybe you'd like to comment a little further about Mm -hmm. the fact that we're potentially putting too many people into a space that we're worrying about and diluting our resources. Yes, well, especially in in low-middle-income countries, you you asked before, uh, that is a big problem because oversensitivity here is not not the issue. The... uh, Latin Americans, for instance, have not endorsed the new definitions because they say um, we still want to stick with the search criteria because they help us to detect infection also, which is very often not recognized. That may be different from American hospitals. So SIRS also helps to make a connection between infection and severe infection and, and life-threatening consequences, organ failure, organ dysfunction, which in many places of the world and outside ICUs and outside resourceful and fully equipped hospitals in rich countries are missing. So there may be a loss of uh, sensitivity which may delay treatment, which may lead to a selection of sicker patients, and the mortality of sepsis is already is, is, is higher in these countries. So I think there's, a, there's people are afraid that this might go into the wrong direction. And they can see no, no real advantage by uh, going with the, new de- with the new definitions. Derek? I think uh, I empathize with uh, groups that have existing quality improvement initiatives and that have done a lot of time to work on outreach uh, and have tried to teach people to use a system. Uh, then if someone else comes out and says, oh, well, we, th- we in our data sets, we didn't find that the old system was performing very well and here's a new system. <laughs> That's excruciating. Uh, so I'm very uh, I'm very sensitive to the issues expressed by groups that had already launched large quality improvement issues. And again, this is not new. I mean, this is exactly uh, what happens every time anyone comes out with uh, uh, new systems or new recommendations. Whether it comes, I mean, for example. This this happens with breast cancer screening, colorectal screening. It happens with uh, any new quality initiative that comes from Medicare that disrupts existing quality improvement initiatives. Uh, even when Medicare came out with their new sepsis initiative, it wasn't exactly the same as the existing initiative that New York had. And so every person in New York was saying, well, this is irritating. Uh, the New York state and the federal government have two different initiatives, both targeting Mm -hmm. sepsis. So, uh, you know, um, it's absolutely inevitable that if you've invested time in one system and then someone comes up with an update, you're going to express a big sigh of disappointment. Um, And uh, I think the, the next step is just to think carefully about, uh, for your own system, what are the costs? of changing to the new system? What are the costs of staying with the old system? Uh, What middle ground can we take? Can we have a temporary period when we wait and see during during which time there's prospective evaluation, et cetera? And that's what any 
sensible and that, that the sensible business decision is just to weigh the pros and cons of doing nothing versus doing a change versus you know some sort of wait and see so I have no problem with uh there being essentially a wide range of responses to the new criteria. Uh, none of that, in my opinion, is a reason to have not generated the new criteria. Again, we thought it was important to revisit the definitions. We weren't married to what those definitions would be. Um, uh, we took care and attention for our methods, uh, but the results are what the results. We're only responsible for the methods, not the results. But you see, I have the problem with the methods. You call it an update, you call it data-driven, but all you did was to test against mortality, which is just one part of the whole picture. Uh, and it's not a comparison of performance. So oh, well, I, I guess I would disagree with that. I, I think, right, I think if right. you read the paper, so, you'll know that we, we actually evaluated... Uh, several domains of validity, only one of which is predictive validity. And in predictive validity, we looked at more than one outcome. Uh, but yeah, it is, it, it's one of several domains. It is one of the classic domains uh, that's evaluated in any of these validity exercises. But it's only as good as, I mean, that's what I said right at the beginning, there are multiple domains, there could be more. But it's certainly a truism, I think, that among all infected patients, the reason you care about finding a subset with sepsis is because you think sepsis is the subset of infected patients uh, most likely to do badly. And the reason you want to focus on them is uh, because those are the ones who, if you miss, you would be most concerned about. Now, we're not trying to predict mortality. It's it's not a mortality prediction exercise. It's predictive validity. Predictive validity is looking at how well you find outcomes associated with the condition of interest. And mortality is obviously the most objective one, but it's not as if we're trying to find the cohort who die. We're trying to find the cohort who have an enriched mortality rate, a far greater odds of dying. Uh, but that's still finding all the patients who are sicker. It's the patients with an elevated risk of dying, not the patients who necessarily die. All right. I think that Derek gave us a nice thought, nice kind of description of how he thinks next steps are, ranging from adoption of QSOFA to kind of a wait and see to a middle approach based on local resources and local efforts. So, and I'll let you have another word on that, Derek, in a second. But, Christiana, where do you think we should go moving forward from here? Well, I think I've said it a number of times. Uh, just the main the main thing is to really generate validation data. And it is a bit unfair uh, to, to kind of set up new definitions and then tell the word, now you go and get the data to do this, but uh, that's the way it is now. On the other hand, I'm a bit concerned that kind of alternative criteria crop up. I think we should we should be very focused and uh, take great care of, of keeping our definitions kind of clean. Otherwise, we lose credibility if we come up with this and that and say we allow another one and so on. We should 
we should try to have one definition for, for clinical care, which is uh, our main interest. Uh, of course, researchers have uh, different questions, and this has always been the case. But it's also, it must be understood that there's one clinical definition of sepsis, which is imperfect, but it's the working one, and we are doing our best to implement it. And the uh, experience shows that we're not, we're not doing such a bad job, actually. So uh, this is what I think is important now. And Derek, final words? Uh, I don't know if there is a single definition. I think uh, tomorrow if someone finds uh, a drug that works in a subset of sepsis patients but only identified by a certain biomarker, uh, in many ways that will become uh, almost the most important definition overnight. Um, I think that uh, by definition, in the absence of gold standard, we are just going to be holding up uh, imperfect definitions that, as best as possible, suit different purposes. Uh, the way in which we define sepsis in austere environments without access to blood tests may be different than the way in which we defined it uh, in places where we can do a lot of fancy testing. And um, I, I think it's fine that there's change. I think that uh, even if public awareness and early aggressive care has helped lower mortality, it's still an insufferably high mortality rate. Uh, the field has to remain active. And so uh, I don't mind that new definitions came out. It's no different than when new mortality prediction models came out. There was a plethora of those in the 80s and 90s. And Having Apache wasn't a reason to not have NPM2 and so forth. Um, so I, I think it's fine to be in evolution, and I think when uh, there are different purposes, it's fine to have different definitions for those different purposes, whether it's audit, clinic, um, aggressive early care in the emergency department versus uh, maybe titration or more sophisticated care in the ICU, they may well require different definitions. I'm afraid that, from, to my mind, that sort of, in, that goes, as long as there's uncertainty, it goes with the territory that there's not necessarily a single best answer. All right. Is there anything that either of you wanted to comment on that you haven't had a chance to comment on? I, I guess the one thing that I do think about, it's interesting that it's stimulating this much controversy. Uh, I think it's good that it's this much controversy because it shows that people care. I don't think that the task force efforts were necessarily perfect in any way, but uh, I do think it is stimulating people to look at existing data and to maybe get away from uh, just going on opinion alone, and I, I, I generally think that's a healthy thing. I think you're right that it has stimulated a lot of conversation and controversy, and I think it's probably driven partly by people's investment in what they've done to date and engagement so far, but it probably is building further engagement. Christiana, any last words? Well, it's uh, it's always a privilege to have a last word, um, uh, particularly uh, with Derek, but um, I just want to emphasize the, the position of a simple clinician, simple physician. 
I don't think it's good to have so many different views and so many doubts and uh, saying we have here different approaches for different conditions. This is a new spin to an, to an old problem where in the past we have tried to get a unified definition working, which is important for the clinician and the physician outside, which is important for, for teaching and for awareness. And again, awareness and awareness also of lay people is at the moment the most important and the most relevant practice and care that we have. We don't have a drug or a magic bullet for sepsis. It's good health care. And for good health care, you need a good picture, which is not fragmented into different approaches. So this is a slippery slope. We should not go there. I mean, in the interest of simple physicians uh, outside of big hospitals, this would be my plea. All right. I think we could continue to go back and forth on the topic, and I appreciate that you have. I really think you've done a nice job of highlighting different aspects of the challenge of the situation. Thank you both so much for your time and your thoughtful discussion.